This yes. is hell. I see. Hey, Alex, if I at any point during the show suddenly salute you, which is something I never do, that means turn the AC back on because it's turned into a hot box in here. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? I uh, paid out from Patreon, and I blew a bunch of money on pants. Oh, really? Uh, I own double the amount of pants I've ever, I've probably owned in my adult life. I ordered yesterday four pairs of pants. <laughs> wow. As uh, Yeah, I'm rich in pants, man. Dickie's work pants, but uh, this should last me for like... 30 years probably. When I moved out from my folks' house, I just kept all of the jeans they had ever given me, and then I was buying jeans at thrift stores and blah, blah, blah. And when I moved from Chicago to to San Francisco, I had to throw out a lot of my stuff. I threw out 29 pairs of jeans. Damn. Which is ridiculous. It's not like I was from a rich family in any way. 29 pairs of jeans. I've been, I've been working with the same pair of pants now for like two months, That uh, which usually you yeah. think people might think, oh, that guy walking down the street with his dog uh, just has a different pair of pants that look the same. <laughs> but uh, when you've accidentally got yellow paint on them, <laughs> uh, everyone can tell in your neighborhood, this guy just has the same pair of pants he's been wearing for two months. I, I got to I gotta, make a change. <laughs> I got a girlfriend haircut this weekend. Looks pretty good. I mean, it only took an hour. It needs some work, but it only took an hour. Usually it's four and a half hours and a fight that ends up uh, lasting for another four and a half hours so no fight no turns no fights it was fantastic on today's show the defunding the police sounds great but what does that necessarily mean and what happens once the cops are defunded more importantly what's next after the protests subside as they all do because they are inevitably unsustainable. Yes, there is a long history of long-term protests like the ZAD, the Zones to Defend, that we discussed here on This Is Hell back in March of 2018 with Pearl Ahrens, who had just posted the article A Free Zone Unlike Any Other for Salvage. You can hear that interview by going to our website right now, thisishell.com, and searching on ZAD, Z-A-D. Some of those occupations lasted for years, even decades. It's the kind of protest that frightens the hell out of Fox News viewers when they happen in the States for only a few days, let alone years or decades. And the police state here in the U.S. does not tolerate sustained political protests like they do in France with their ZADs and occupations like those that took place in Germany's Hambach Forest. So what happens when those police who do not tolerate the citizens exercising their constitutionally protected freedom of speech and assembly? What happens when they are defunded? What next? We start this week by suggesting that what could be next is the potentially transformative, if not revolutionary, practice of participatory budgeting applied to policing, putting the budgetary power in the hands of the people who the police are supposed to serve and protect. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to Alexander Kalakatranis, who is author of the current affairs article, What to Do Once We've Defunded the Police. One idea, give the freed up monetary resources back to the people through participatory budgeting. Alexander is a PhD candidate in political science at Yale University, where he researches participatory democratic schooling. Alexander is on the advisory board of the Participatory Budgeting Project and has designed and coordinated participatory budgeting processes. Throughout our conversation, every time I say participatory budgeting, if you do a shot, you will be unconscious within five minutes. Prior to arriving at Yale, he worked in advocacy and development of worker cooperatives. Find out more about the Participatory Budgeting Project. That's another shot. At Participatory Budgeting another shot.org follow alexander on twitter at avk48 and this is helen no way condones drinking of liquor this early in the morning unless you're listening to this later in the evening totally makes sense brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover which you may get from playing the drinking game of participatory budgeting this is hell and alex has this week's hangover cure this week's hangover cure is 
crackers. You know, <laughs> Which is appropriate for a uh, conversation on defunding police, don't yeah, you think? 2018 Healthline.com article, which we will be referencing for several months, the 23 best hangover foods, which has already suggested watermelon and honey as hangover cures. Registered dietitian Lizzie Strait writes, crackers contain fast-acting carbs that can increase your blood sugar during hangover and improve related symptoms. Lizzie continues, when the liver is processing alcohol, it no longer focuses on regulating blood sugar. That is why low blood sugar can result from excessive drinking, especially in people with diabetes. So eating carbs increases blood sugar. That makes this week's hangover cure crackers. And nothing sobers me up like seeing crackers the morning after I've had a heavy night of drinking. This is not the media. This is hell. You know, it used to be we could easily differentiate ourselves here on This Is Hell from the rest of the media by saying things like the United States has become an authoritarian, militarized police state that is quickly sliding toward fascism. And we could rest assured nobody knowing we could rest assured knowing that nobody, and I mean nobody in the corporate establishment, media, news, or entertainment industries would not be echoing any similar statement. We were certain of it. It used to be easy to have a unique perspective on the news. All you had to do was point to the lack of democracy and a representational democracy, the power of money over U.S. governance, the prioritization of capitalism over democracy, and profits over people under neoliberalism, capitalism's dependence on a low-paid, precarious workforce with limited workers' rights and safety protections, workers who do not have the ability to unionize with institutional racism, sexism, and an overarching culture of heteronormative patriarchy pervading all of society, and you're off to the races. Just say some of that stuff. Not anymore. Even the late-night talk show hosts and comedians are getting in on the radical project of looking at the roots of society's problems and revealing its inhumane brutality for what it is. Institutional cruelty for profit. At the end of our most recent show here at thisishell.com last Thursday, I teased this monologue by saying it was going to be about a hashtag abolish Department of Homeland Security, hashtag abolish DHS campaign. I was trying to get started. I thought abolish DHS was good, but what about getting rid of all of Homeland Security and all the horrible institutional responses to 9-11 that were not necessary in stopping terrorism from abroad, but were necessary for implementing the police state the right and many liberal centrists had wanted for decades. With inequality rapidly increasing, 9-11 was the perfect event to exploit so the fewer and fewer people who had most of the stuff could protect it from the hordes whose labor and wages had been stolen by the wealthy who now have all the stuff and all the cops are all dressed up as soldiers who now occupy cities and manage the poor for the rich. Sure, abolish ICE, but abolish DHS too. I thought, screw the establishment media. We still have our bona fides of playing the counterculture hits before they're spun by any other DJ. That's when arriving back home after Friday's Patreon podcast where I talked about paranoia being an outcome of a massive ego and my paranoia of federal troops coming to arrest me was caused by me believing far too much in my own self-importance. Confident that I was happy with the monologue topic for today's show, I found that somebody had already started arguing abolish DHS, and it wasn't at some fringe leftist outlet that was being controlled by corporate culture, but the freaking New Yorker. In an article by staff writer Jonathan Blitzer, no relation to Wolf to the best of my knowledge, thank God, in that article called Is It Time to Defund the Department of Homeland Security, Blitzer points out how much more resource DHS is than any other law enforcement agency exposing the militarization of the agency. Quote, DHS is a relatively young federal department founded in 2003 to unify a broad array of agencies tasked with handling immigration and border enforcement in the name of national security following the attacks of 9-11. Before the Trump era, the department's sec secretaries had been conscious of its newfound standing in the federal bureaucracy, as a former senior official once told the author, you can't let the place become a political football because its resources are vast, its power is broad, and its responsibilities involve protecting the country from imminent threats. Now, in the past four years, however, career officials have been forced out en masse as the department's enforcement agenda has fallen into the direct service of President Trump's re-election efforts. Acting Secretary of Homeland Security Chad Wolf is only in charge now because his immediate predecessors were fired or driven to resign, and his deputies are all political appointees. One former official said there's no longer any check on bad ideas. 
There were signs that the administration would stage dramatic action involving the department in the months before the election, the former official added, saying, We just thought it would be about immigration and sanctuary cities. It's the political use of law enforcement in election year that worries me. It wasn't bad enough for the stuffed shirts of the New Yorker to beat me to the punch. Sunday, the New York Times offered statistics that laid bare the fascist racism President Trump is employing against exaggerated claims of crime and violence, with federal agents surging into only the U.S. cities that are run by mayors who are from the Democratic Party, revealing the partisan nature of these attacks in an attempt by the administration to tear the country completely apart along party lines, which leaves the rest of us who are not fans of either party kind of in the lurch in an uncomfortable and desperate situation with seemingly no way out, as columnist Genia Belafonte posted in The Times yesterday. Crime in major American cities was and remains at historic lows. In 2015, the murder rate in New York stood at a quarter of what it was in 1990, while urban areas had been getting safer by 2018. In contrast, the violent crime rate in rural areas had surpassed the national average for the first time in a decade. Belafonte also points to a shooting that happened here in Chicago where 13 people were shot on the South Side and how that led President Trump to say that we are going to send in federal agents. Meanwhile, there was possibly the most cruel and heinous crime committed against black people in Florida by white people in frost-proof Florida that went completely ignored by the president and the media. Yes, it's rural areas where you should be concerned about a rapid rise in crime, horrible crime, not just, not in urban areas. Who knows, maybe those who live in rural areas are seeing their increase in crime and blaming it on the big city, saying that these must be people who came in from the big city causing crime. Nonetheless, with more violent crime now in rural areas than urban, and being accustomed to urban violence and crime, I'm kind of scared about going on my annual summer vacation with my family, as small-town America has apparently become a cesspool of assault. Who knows what those people are up to or can do. I saw footage this weekend of a white couple in a small-town Minnesota Walmart who were shopping while wearing fabricated face masks that were emblazoned with the German Nazi flag. Yes, Walmart shoppers were disgusted seeing the Nazi flags on their faces, some yelling, I kill Nazis, my grandfather killed Nazis. But it was what the Nazi Walmart shoppers said in response that should give us all pause. Once confronted, one of the couple replied, I'm not a Nazi. I'm trying to tell people what's going to happen in America. If you vote for Joe Biden, you are going to be in Nazi Germany. That's what it's going to be like because socialism is going to happen here in America. That kind of twisted logic armed with concealed carry and stand-your-own-ground laws is frightening. Cancel culture on Twitter is one thing, but cancel culture from an armed person wearing a Nazi face mask in a Walmart can be a lot more permanent. The right is arguing on right-wing talk radio that the surge of federal agents into other cities outside of Portland is within not only the purview of DHS and the other agencies participating, it's something that is done all the time. And right-wing radio is correct, except this normal practice of assisting local governments with any crime problem they may have had not in the past been preceded by and happening simultaneously with federal troops marching on unarmed civilians in other cities, spraying tear gas and shooting non-lethal weapons that can blind people and crack skulls, troops who've been asked by local and state officials to leave, and those troops refusing to do so. Think of it this way. If someone saying they were the cops who show no no identification whatsoever came to your neighbor's house, filled it with tear gas, shot the people inside, dragged them out and into unmarked cars, took them to an undisclosed location, read them their Miranda rights without charging them with a crime, promising to go east on the, uh, to go easy on the uh, detainees if they ask questions without an attorney present, How excited would you be if those same cops showed up the next day at your place, but this time wearing suits and ties, and said they were simply there to help you and make you and your neighbors more safe? While looking at your neighbor's house still smoldering, you probably aren't going to be too excited about inviting those same cops inside. With all this competition from the mainstream media suddenly allowing themselves to question institutional racism and the violence of racial capitalism, not that they are using those words, they still cannot manage to utter the word neoliberalism, so they can keep their centrist liberal membership card intact. With all this sudden radical competition, we need to keep up our game here, to up our game here at This Is Hell, to stay ahead of the curve of dissent that is always arching forward, 
So sure, abolish, hashtag abolish ICE. And yes, hashtag abolish DHS. But yes, do not forget to abolish Patriot Act II and all the Bush administration's draconian responses to the attacks of 9-11 that were wholeheartedly supported by Democrats other than Senator Barbara Lee of Texas. The attacker's intent was to reveal the United States for what they believed the U.S. truly is. Lurking deep down in the USA, they believed, was its true identity, and that is a fascist police state willing to crack down on its citizens, which is not the democracy the U.S. makes itself out to be. A USA that's willing to launch a forever war. When we're done abolishing ICE and DHS and the Patriot Act, then maybe we can get on with abolishing the president's private army, too, the CIA. Like former DHS officials, it's easy to find former CIA employees who think that agency has also gone too far and needs to be ended. And until all that gets done, I'm sorry to inform all the protesters that are still out in the streets. This is hell coming up. Participatory budgeting could completely change policing. We'll also have rotten history and tell you the rest of this week's guests live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. Everybody is talking about defunding the police, whether it's protesters in the streets who want to do something about racialized police violence or law and order Police supporters who fear defunding means roving mobs of criminals taking whatever they want without any justice whatsoever. Defunding the cops is a major topic of conversation today. But how to best defund the police and what happens when you do so? Here to offer a potentially transformative path in defunding the police. Alexander Kolokotronis is the author of the Current Affairs article, What to Do Once We've Defunded the Police. One idea, give the freed up monetary resources back to the people through participatory budgeting. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alexander. Thank you for having me. Alexander is on the advisory board of the Participatory Budgeting Project and has designed and coordinated participatory budgeting processes. Prior to arriving at Yale, he worked in advocacy and development of worker cooperatives. You can find out more about the Participatory Budgeting Project at participatorybudgeting.org. And you can follow Alexander on Twitter at AVK48. So you write in 2016 when the City Council of Durham, North Carolina proposed to invest $81 million in a new police headquarters. The Durham Beyond Policing Coalition held an unusual protest. Activists, writes Brandon Jordan of Waging Nonviolence, handed fake money to protesters to put into buckets that represented different priorities for the community. Durham Beyond Policing's demand was for a participatory budgeting process, a clunky phrase that refers to people directly and democratically deciding how public money is spent, as opposed to politicians or bureaucrats making budgetary decisions. Their ask was clear. What would you do with $81 million? Spend it on an institution that harms black communities or spend that money on schools, mental health services, free public transportation, other options? What would a people's budget look like. Now here in Chicago in the 49th Ward, Chicago's Rogers Park, the neighborhood that's right at Ward, right adjacent to where we are doing the show, they're celebrating 10 years of participatory budgeting this month. Voters in the ward are offered projects from which to choose for prioritizing of funding, like this year's options were street and alley resurfacing, a mural for the outside of a high school, planting beds and fencing at one park, a water spray at another playground, and outdoor exercise equipment maybe at another program, just so you get kind of an idea of how far that participatory budgeting has gone. What happens when that kind of budgeting, Alexander, what happens when it hap- when it takes place in areas that are not aligned with movements like one against racialized police violence? Can't participatory budgeting become bad if those participating are a bunch of jerks? Uh, that's a great question, Chuck. Um, there, this is one of the reasons why in the article what I outline is that when we're talking about coupling participatory budgeting with social movements or demands for participatory budgeting emerging out of social movements, we have to be very careful about the design and who's involved in the design process. And so there are a number of instances around the world where you'll find participatory budgeting processes that are emerging or uh, being implemented in contexts that aren't, say, the most democratic, that aren't necessarily equipped to, to have success. Indeed, a number of processes I've been involved with have been ones where institutions, uh, overarching institutions, have 
set up people for failure, for these processes to fail. And so when we're talking about participatory budgeting within contexts where maybe the general population is not so aligned with um, some of the goals that we're talking about uh, or that are discussed, frankly, under talking about defunding the police, we need to talk about the scope of the process. And so I, one of the things that I've been thinking about for the last few years now is uh, when we're talking, again, participatory budgeting, we can't simply just put that right underneath notions of local control. Because as we know in the United States, local control often maps onto quite racialized divides. And instead, we need to talk about what is the scope and design of a process that cuts across those divides, that cuts across, for example, neighborhoods, that cuts across even urban and suburban. And there are not too many examples of that in the United States. There are some examples of that across the world. But I think as social movement actors, and this is the real, this is the real point, who are the people who are promoting participatory budgeting and involved in design? That's where, that's where it's important to really get involved in thinking about these questions. How are we resolving those issues of, say, who exactly is the constituency being covered here? What are the design features that are cutting across that? And I can give you one example. I believe one example is from, it's either Milan or Bologna, where the participatory budgeting process there uh, has involved both selecting projects at the neighborhood level as well as having a vote at the citywide level. And there are certain design features that way that get people not only thinking about what projects look like at a broader scale, that not only get more constituents involved at a broader scale, but actually get discussion and deliberation going across neighborhoods. And I think this is a really important feature of participatory budgeting, not to actually um, uh, amplify or reinforce existing divisions that... Um, are ones that might map on again to class and racial divides, but ones that actually cut right across them through carefully uh, designed spaces of deliberation. I think this is a pivotal component, and that's why it's so important that social movement actors are involved in pushing processes rather than having participatory budgeting processes emerge that are, one, not that well-funded, and two, don't have these features in place and result in exactly what, um, what your question was getting at. So uh, you touched on something there that you do not uh, address in the article that I didn't really think about until you were talking about it just now, which is uh, the shortcomings of local control. What explains those shortcomings of local control and how can participatory budgeting try to, I know that you were just touching on this, but how can participatory budgeting try to avoid those shortcomings of local control? Because I've never really, I, 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 have, I haven't quite wrapped my mind around that quite yet. Uh, that's a great question. And I, I think this is something that actually, uh, something I do mention in the piece around Porto Alegre. I think this is a bit of what they were, what they were getting at in Porto Alegre. And so, uh, Porto Alegre being the city where participatory budgeting, as we know, it was uh, sort of originated in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, I think, uh, one, th one way in which, we might see uh, divisions reinforced as far as local control goes is when we see participatory budgeting processes that simply say have an equal allocation of money across neighborhoods. So for example, like in New York City, uh, and I'll use the example I use in the article, if we say had the same amount of money going to the Lower East Side as goes to Harlem, that, that likely doesn't more than likely that will not do much to alleviate disparities if the goal is to actually tackle and resolve issues of economic and other forms of political inequality then simply having money that is locally partitioned on a quote-unquote equal basis won't do much if, if if anything it it will do things in terms of um, increasing civic engagement which might have long-term effects and in very positive ways. But as far as these deep structural issues, it doesn't necessarily go far enough. And so when we're talking about, I think, local control, we're, I, I'm, I'm especially thinking of the, the, again, the suburban urban divide and how highly racialized that has been, though in the past few years, we're almost seeing these kinds of flips uh, in terms of racialization of suburban and urban. And we're also talking between neighborhoods within, within cities where, again, you'll have the Lower East Side versus Harlem. And there are um, issues of local control there where people do all sorts of things as we see, in, as I'm sure is also seen in Chicago, uh, where um, 
even at the neighborhood level, people are very, 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 of course, territorial about their neighborhoods and how that maps onto um, highly racialized uh, divisions, but also sort of entrenchments and how policing is also involved in that. Uh, and so I think some of the issues with participatory budgeting there is that um, simply saying, okay, we're going to take the existing map and uh, just add another institutional layer on top of the existing map is not uh, good enough. Instead, we need to see participatory budgeting and other, other forms of participatory democratic institutions as sort of tools that can be interventions in the map. Things that don't just simply say, okay, the boundaries look like this, this, this here, and so we're going to add this here to also just sort of reinforce that or uh, just map right over that. Rather, we need to see these as tools to remake the map and therefore remake the, 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 the boundaries and uh, therefore the disparities that also um, are a part of that. And that's where participatory budgeting uh, has been used very well in other countries, such as, for example, in Porto Alegre, where in Porto Alegre, what they did was they actually had money that was more equitably allocated, where poorer neighborhoods would actually have more uh, money to allocate. But also at the citywide level where you'd have, quote unquote, budget delegates, people who volunteered out of us or were elected out of assemblies to actually have these citywide discussions of citywide priorities. And that's the key thing here, too. In the United States, as it currently stands, we still don't really have PB processes, PB being a shorthand for participatory budgeting, where uh, we're really getting to discussing what are the priorities of a city or of a region. We might get it again at the neighborhood level, but at the neighborhood level, that that doesn't necessarily do enough to say, talk about, or discuss what the priorities are and how they affect, and really what the implications are for, say, the wealthier neighborhood right next door. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not possible to do so. Again, there are there are ways to do so, and that's exactly why we need social movement actors to bring their perspectives and also their insights on economic and racial inequality uh, into these processes. So how did police and policing change in Porto Alegre with participatory budgeting when it was at its peak? Because, as you say, it did not eventually last. And I'm certain that their participatory budget would be different from not only the next neighbor or next city over, but the next country over would be very different from here in the United States. But how did uh, police and policing change in Porto Alegre? What might we learn from that experience that we could possibly see here on the streets of the United States? That's a gr uh, another great question. Uh, I, I have actually not seen any studies regarding um, the changing of policing in, in, in Porto Alegre. I do, I do think, however, there are some important lessons as far as some of its shortcomings regarding uh, development uh, in Porto Alegre. And the reason why I bring this up is that as we're talking about canceled rent in this moment, uh, as another sort of universal demand being brought brought forward, uh, and uh, some movement leaders or uh, movement organizers on the ground talking about the connection between uh, rent, cancel rent, and policing. Because after all, who is going to be enforcing the evictions? It's going to be the police. Uh, what we see, for example, in some of the uh, some of what happened in Puerto Alegre later on in the process. Because again, and actually in Porto Alegre, the process still does exist. It just looks it looks much different, uh, or um, there are a lot of different features to it now that have uh, curtailed the, the the more sort of popular power uh, components of the process. What we saw more in the two thousands in Porto Alegre was the way in which um, um, cer certain fi figures might uh, enter into the process, where um, it. Uh, there's a great piece on this uh, mapping onto sort of like neoliberal modes of development. And so, for example, uh, there's a very good piece on this regarding uh, the talk of, of a sort of building of a kind of mall where um, those who were, say, uh, street vendors were um, originally being engaged in this sort of development process as, oh, well, um, we're going to create this sort of like mall kind of um, um, space and street vendors are going to be able to, to have a more sort of stable business and stable uh, uh, location. Uh, but the result was that, of course, some people 
got to participate in that. Some people got to reap the advantage of uh, reap the advantages of that. And in other cases, uh, people were just cleared out. And so uh, that resulted that that's a sort of um, uh, warning kind of example from Porto Alegre again from the more mid two thousands. Uh, where we need to be mindful of uh, how this, uh, how this, how when we talk about redevelopment, how that entwines with policing. Because of course, when we're talking about redevelopment, we're talking about certain people getting to reap the benefits of certain developments, and then certain people not. We're talking about how the police are involved with that as well, which is why we then need to think about how participatory budgeting ties into the broader sort of redevelopment process as well, which again, why it's important to talk about how this engages in terms of citywide or regional priorities. Uh, because depending on what that looks like, it depends on what sort of how policing, of course, is involved in that as well. Um, so, that, so that's the extent to which I... I've sort of um, um, seen any sort of discussion about um, um, enforcement and participatory budgeting in Porto Alegre, but that is but that is a great question. We are speaking with Ale- Alexander Kolokotronis. He is the author of the current affairs article, "What Do We What to Do Once We've Defunded the Police." He is on the advisory board of the Participatory Budgeting Project, and you can find out more about the Participatory Budgeting Project at participatorybudgeting.org, and you can follow Alexander on Twitter at AVK48. And you write that in Porto Alegre, the broad community participation in the nitty-gritty governance had knock-on effects well beyond the budgets themselves, as academics Emil A. Sobotka and Danilo R. Streck note, participatory budgeting in Porto Alegre, quote, proved to have unforeseen consequences like questioning the traditional model of representative local democracy, widening the circle of people interested in political affairs, allowing the residents to question bureaucratic structures and to exercise a bit more control over their rulers. Well, to have participatory budgeting, though, you have to have people participating. And as you know, uh, when it comes to local elections, that's, they have far lower turnout than they do when it's a federal election. Off-year elections, 2018, for instance, was very low, much lower turnout. So when it comes to local, you would think that there would be less participation. You were talking about the territorial pride that people have within their community. Does participatory budgeting lead to participation, or is it just another aspect of dem- democracy interfering with our daily work lives? Uh, again, I think this is so related to the to the design features of the process. So, for example, I, I think what we've seen is, uh, let's say we compare again Porto Alegre to, to, to a place like New York City. Uh, in Porto Alegre, what you'll find, or what you at least once had found, was uh, participatory budgeting being really out in front in the city. You, you'd have advertisements for the process, uh, processes on buses, on billboards. More than that, you'd also actually have um, the projects that were implemented through participatory budgeting. You, you'd have big signs noting that, hey, the community actually had decided and put this project in place through participatory budgeting. There were all these ways that over time, uh, participation actually increased. And that's a key thing in looking at the the Porto Alegre PB process. It was by really the late 90s, early, early 2000s that that participation actually peaked. The, The original process had started in 1989, and participation was not going down. It was actually going up. Uh, and that was through all sorts of, again, important ways of engagement and important, important ways of noting uh, how people and people as a community were owning that they collectively had decided and implemented certain projects and project outcomes that they had wanted, that they had decided that they wanted school in their neighborhood, or that they had decided that they needed certain roads in place, or that they had fixed sort of, uh, uh, or no, more than fixed, enhanced, say, uh, the uh, u- utilities and systems of water, for example. All of these things really highlighted and have highlighted that we matter and our decisions matter and it's important for us to participate. Another very interesting thing about participatory budgeting in the late 90s in, in Porto Alegre was that what, what you'd also find is that 
even if people say didn't participate in one year, it might have been a family member that had participated that year or the next and so forth. And so even if, if people weren't as individuals always there, you find um, neighborhood units or family units, for example, being highly engaged in the process. And that's because of these features that were involved. If we say, for example, I remember once I was walking around my, a neighborhood of mine in New York City when I, when I had lived there, and the, the, the highest form of engagement I saw was simply a sort of flyer on a pole on the side of the street, not particularly, didn't look like particularly anything else. And then one reason why I had noticed was because, of course, I was someone who would notice or and think about participatory budgeting. And I think this has a high effect, again, on, on how, how, um, how these processes actually turn out, what the turnout looks like. And at one point in Porto Alegre, I believe the staff was somewhere around 50 for just participatory budgeting. We can't run really, we can't run processes and expect great turnout if we provide no staffing for them or if we provide very little staffing and therefore stretch people thin uh, and therefore don't have great facilitation or have facilitators who are burned out. We don't have great data collection and data collection that actually goes towards having the best possible projects that we can have. And we can't actually do really targeted outreach. And all those things are really required um, for making a participatory democratic process work. And I think part of this is also sort of the norms that we construct around these processes as well. For, for some reason, we think, oh, um, well, if we just open things up, well, people should just come. But we don't do this with other uh, forms of institutions. We don't just sort of say, oh, well, we've created the, the shell of this kind of an institution, and therefore it should just work. It's the same thing with a participatory democratic process. We need to actually resource not just the outcomes, which is, of course, very important, but we need to actually resource the features of making a successful process. And that's, that's where I think where we're when we're talking about defunding the police as well and tying that to participatory budgeting, that's also the opportunity that we have in this moment to actually talk about what does it mean to resource the institution itself of, say, a participatory budgeting process and not just saying we'll put some crumbs towards outcomes that are very, very good, some of which you highlighted to, 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 kick, to kick off, but are not necessarily sufficient when we're talking about remaking and reshaping our priorities. So was this expanded notion of democracy then by those who are participating within participatory budgeting, was that unintended but an inevitable, inevitable consequence? Does participatory budgeting lead the citizenry to demand more democracy? Because it would seem, I'm just wondering if it's more revolutionary or reform. It sounds like participatory budgeting sounds like a reform that could get past, that people could understand, that conservatives could even understand, that they would have more control over budgeting. But at the same time, it sounds like it's very revolutionary, that it could circumvent whatever limits are put on political participation and imagination by, say, either the media or even by our Constitution. So is this almost a covert revolutionary reform? That uh, that I think is it, it depends so much on who is involved on the ground. I think it lends an opportunity for just that. So, for example, if I think, for example, more as an organizer and I think about the opportunities to make interventions uh, in different institutions, where, whether it's, for example, in terms of labor organizing, whether it's in terms of uh, uh figuring out how to sort of construct a constituency and a base around a demand. I think participatory budgeting, not I think, I, I've seen participatory budgeting uh, work that way as well uh, in terms of when activists get involved, that can lead to actually uh, quite a bit of tension with the powers that be that this maps onto. And so um, this is something, for example, I saw at, at City University of New York where I was a student where in some places where we, when we were pushing for participatory budgeting, it was not something necessarily all the most welcome to, to the administration. It actually um, further actually uh, brought about forms of political education because those who were now getting involved in participatory budgeting were lear learning the whole sort of institutional scheme of the university, 
of its role in the community, of its role in relation to students, of problems that were that were at that up until that point masked. It does the same thing at the citywide level, where if you actually have organizers in place, say people, ordinary people from their neighborhood are stepping into a process and now they're interfacing with agency officials. The difference between having an organizer or an activist present among those budget delegates that are now interfacing with agency officials and not having an organizer and activist present can make a huge difference because that could be an opportunity for, for serious sy systemic types of critique in terms of, see, this is what this is the limits of this process, but also more than the limits, this is the way in which we need to reshape power for this process for these processes to work even more. And you'll find countless examples of people who have gotten involved in PB processes and come up against the limits of it in terms of interacting with those who are quote unquote in power, in authority, and then try and make shifts accordingly. And I think this is even why from what I've seen in Chicago, I've heard in Chicago, there have been some really interesting things. I've been, I, I remember reading a piece about a year ago where people were actually voting directly on, uh, on, a, on whether development uh, should occur. And that it had gone through a whole, I don't remember the exact neighborhood in Chicago, but um, uh, the pictures that consisted of hundreds of people packed into sort of this community room where people were, again, they weren't voting on the, on, on the money. They weren't voting for participatory budgeting. They were voting on is this development going to happen here? Hundreds of people. Something that, again, I think is related to when we're talking about like sort of expanding the imaginaries of people and then bringing that into other institutional processes. So I do think, again, this is why it's so important that social movement actors are involved in participatory budgeting processes and demands for it because they actually are opportunities to engage a broad base of people. And that's, that's, that's another thing that... Um, sometimes gets overlooked. Of course, sometimes these processes don't have uh, the highest or greatest turnout. But on the other hand, sometimes what we find these participatory budgeting processes is that a lot of people who organizers and activists wish to engage with, wishing to tap into these uh, into, into different networks, are, are far, of course, exceedingly harder to do uh, than might initially be hoped for or appear to be. But in a process like participatory budgeting, there is that opportunity especially if there's a sort of coordinated effort to do so. It's something, again, that I, at least I have not heard of in the United States, but what it's important to see, even in the context of Porto Alegre, is that this came out of the Workers' Party. And the Workers' Party, at the time at least, was a sort of mix of social movement actors, labor unions, and so forth. Uh, and that lended an opportunity to really reshape the city. And all sorts of things happen as a result. What's not touched on in, in the article that I wrote is that the uti water utilities were reshaped, where they had way more participatory mechanisms in there, where there was some degree of workers' control and um, um, control by users, where that affected the pricing structure, where um, those from, from lower-income neighborhoods were no longer being, for example, gouged on water prices. All these sorts of after effects from participatory budgeting that can, they do wobble the line between revolution and reform. But I think, again, that's where it's important. Where are the organizers? If the organizers are not present, then participatory budgeting, of course, becomes um, something that might be a nice sort of sit form of civic engagement, maybe a nice sort of reform, but certainly not something more revolutionary. In other contexts, organizers are present. Organizers are constantly doing the work of critique and bringing people in, and it can become something like that. Uh, and that's where you see even, for example, in Porto Alegre, where worker cooperatives, land uh, worker cooperatives, housing cooperatives, land trust type models were emerging out of participatory budgeting as well. Over a decade, a number of worker cooperatives were formed. So there you see workers control emerging. You, you, point, yeah. you point out that the money is there, our money is there. Countless infographics from cities of varying sizes depict police budgets towering over nearly all other budget categories. Everybody knows that when it comes to the Department of Defense, they get far more of the federal budget than any other part of the federal budget. So how, so how do you think we understand the police differently when we understand that's the same kind of proportional relative budgetary decisions that are being made with law enforcement, that law enforcement is the number one priority of U.S. cities? 
Um, so I, I think it's important that um, what, what's, what's been interesting about talking about defund, defunding the police is the way in which um, um, this touches on some other things I, 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 uh, that, that there's been some tension, I think, uh, on the left in terms of how we think about how to organize in this moment. And so something I, I've written a bit about in the past is, is on municipalism. And that, that has received some criticism as, well, uh, the municipality is not really the, sh- should not really be seen as the primary site of struggle because, of course, it's really at the state level where there's, a lot, there's preemption of all sorts, uh, preemption as it regards zoning, preemption as it regards minimum wage laws, for example. In other words, meaning a city cannot, in many places, a city cannot just simply change the minimum wage. It has to happen at the state level. And, and many of our state state legislatures are controlled by the right, so on and so on and so on. Um, I, I think the sort of mistaken critique there, or the sort of even, maybe not mistaken critique, but sort of the speaking past each other, is that the way I think we can look at municipalities, which again are, are, are right now at least the primary sites of people talking about defunding the police, are in terms of uh, the way we might understand say, uh, the municipality as an organizing space. And so just as we, we might think in labor organizing about certain offices or um, um, certain um, places within a building even as the shop floor, we, ha- we have to sort of start understanding um, or seeing our, our more neighborhood spaces or living spaces as the shop floor for organizing. And this is where I think it's important to sort of even start, in a sense, with defunding the police, in that uh, when we're talking about the shop floor, we're talking about, okay, if we can organize our neighborhood, if we can organize our city, then we can really, and we can talk about really reshaping our priorities accordingly, then we're engaging, we're, we're, we're involved in some kind of mass engagement. And so a lot of where I'm even coming at with this is, how do we think about this as engaging in the day-to-day work of political organizing where shifting priorities has a real sort of palpable life to it. And that's what I think makes this demand for defunding the police uh, so so important. And even the implications for it are things that a number of people, I think, across the spectrum, across the ideological spectrum, are sort of grappling with. When we're talking about reshaping our priorities, what does that even mean? And when we're saying it in, the, in sort of that way, this brings us back to sort of the Durham example that, that you led with. What is it that people actually would want? That's an incredible organizing tool. That's an incredibly powerful tool because it's at once something that you can do in the moment, as well as something that allows a broader group of people to actually engage in the kind of visioning that they can work towards and return to. And so as we have those discussions about deprioritizing carceral forms of, uh, of engagement, whatever that is, uh, at the local and municipal level, we can start having those discussions in a really, again, serious way of talking about that. What does that mean in terms of the military? Because I know something that, of course, many of us talk about sometimes is where is the anti-war movement? Maybe the anti-war movement has to, again, grow out of our very local and municipal struggles to fight uh, coercive powers at this level. And once those have sort of life in them, that, that in terms of if we're well situated, uh, can be scaled up further. One, one of the very coercive, the very large coercive powers that are uh, an obstacle to any kind of addressing of police violence are police unions. How can participatory budgeting challenge the power of police unions? Uh, this brings a, this brings it back to um, the presence of organizers and, and, and activists and constructing an on an ongoing base. Uh, there are um, interesting ways, uh, even even in the United States, <laughs> uh, where we've seen participatory budgeting used in ways that can go towards building a base. For example, there was one process in Brooklyn that involved uh, the possibility of funding a tenant union. And so um, I don't recall if that, if that uh, was one of the winning projects of, of putting money towards the tenants union. However, this goes to the point that 
um, money can be geared or shifted into areas where, that are explicitly uh, involved with uh, organization building. And organization building is key towards, for example, fighting anything like like a police union or providing any sort of countervailing power. Uh, one of the and it's important to really highlight the the the, the importance of this. Um, for example, um, we talk so much in this country, or we have at least up until this moment, about private prisons. What we have not talked about in terms of like in terms of the expansion or in terms of the creation, really, of mass incarceration, has been the role of police police unions and correctional officer unions. The only way I think you can really counter that is if you're building your own sort of counter organizations and have your own sort of organized counter base. And participatory budgeting, I think, again, provides another avenue where organizers can be involved and really, really step into the role of building organization out of such processes. Of course, there are countless stories from, from also, again, activists and organizers who will initially meet people at, for example, public hearings or what have you and organize from there. It's not to say that those are the ultimate spaces of exercising or building any kind of movement power, but they are an important space of engagement to build those organizations that can say counter something like uh, police unions and so forth and provide their own narrative. Because that's something that we also see that uh, we're sometimes lacking in this moment, where those are sort of stable, enduring organizations that have enduring, stable networks and are able to consistently call for what it is they want to call for. And that's something that we see is lacking on the other end. And those, organiz- those kinds of organizations can, can, can grow out of more consistent community processes. So what did the people of Durham, North Carolina want that wasn't typical of a police budget? Uh, they wanted more money in schools. They wanted more money in transportation. They had construct and they actually used that initial uh, protest uh, to over the years uh, construct what's a people's budget. And so that, that's exactly what they're calling for right now uh, in Durham. They're calling for um, that, that those increased monies in those areas. Uh, and that, again, came right out of that protest. Initially, uh, if you see pictures from the process, you'll see sort of like the, the percentages that emerged uh, that, uh, for example, showed this amount of monopoly money went here. This is the budgetary breakdown here. Uh, but uh, in their website, durhambeyondpolicing.org, you'll find a sort of breakdown of what their people's budget is and uh, what it is that they're requesting, which again, puts shifts so much more money, again, primarily into education and transportation uh, and even other forms of sort of um, assisting people to say, develop their own businesses and so on. Uh, but that, that again, is a, is a key part of it. And it's something we also saw in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, there was also the emergence of a people's budget that involved participatory budgeting, but it, but has also involved calling to shift money towards education. That has been a really uh, uh, big component uh, from what I've seen in a lot of the formations of people's budgets. Talk of shifting money really over to education, because of course, since uh, the 2008 recession, we've seen money drained from all sorts of public institutions, especially schooling, which only widens disparities between as we talked about it before with local control, disparities between say white suburbs and more black and brown cities where uh, the, um, the racial wealth gap as also mapped onto the sort of um, quote unquote achievement gap, though achievement is something I think also to be contested in the education space, but that's another conversation, uh, has also been exacerbated. And so in people's budgets, you find those things are being addressed. And that's, again, involved with talking about how organizers are involved. We're talking about these shift in priorities, then uh, allows for more political education, and then the emergence of people's budgets that address uh, the sort of starving of our public goods. And so people's budgets tend to, especially out of a place like Durham, with Durham Beyond Policing, start to go in talking about, again, transportation, public education, and then in a moment like this, alternatives to policing. We have been speaking with Alexander Kolokotronis. He is the author of the current affairs article, What, do we, what to Do 
once we've defunded the police. What to do once we've defunded the police. Alexander is on the advisory board of the Participatory Budgeting Project. You can find out more about that project by going to participatorybudgeting.org. And you can follow Alexander on Twitter at AVK48. AVK48. One last question for you, Alexander. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. Like climate change, Alexander, is participatory budgeting nothing more than a secret plot to spread socialism? (laughs) Uh, Depends on whose hands uh, it's in. Um, I saw, what is it, a graphic the other day? What if it's all a hoax and then we get all these good things uh, anyway? And what does it include? Healthier living better housing, better jobs, reduce it. I, I, um, I think what I like about participatory budgeting is something that uh, I see as important to a lot of discussions around participatory democracy more broadly and alternative institutions, which is I think in the immediate moment, they can provide, for example, a lot of benefits, whether it's socialist or leaning or not. However, I think it's 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 vital actually that socialists and I speak as someone involved in Democratic Socialists of America DSA it's vital that socialists really sort of take up the mantle of these institutions because if if we don't uh, the the result is that they become these tools to quell social movements rather than ones that are an aid to it I don't even necessarily think they have to be a quote-unquote Trojan horse of sorts uh, for socialists. I think they should be a part of the vision for socialists. We've been seeing so much more discussion lately of quote-unquote sewer socialism, of uh, the Socialist Party, for example, that took control of Milwaukee uh, in the early 1900s up uh, up until the mid 20th century, really. And how much of that was really, really a vision, enacting a vision of more kind of a welfare state model, a traditional welfare state model. And if we're talking about socialism at the municipal level, if we're talking about municipal socialism, as was again being or is being harkened back to as it relates to Milwaukee and other socialists in the United States in the early part of the 20th century and what updating it looks like. I think we need to move beyond that. And I think that means we need to, as a socialist movement and a growing one, we need to talk about what are the range of institutional tools we have at our disposal. I don't think it's enough to simply talk about uh, uh, sort of rebuilding or refunding public services and public goods. That is, of course, very important. But we need to talk about who are sort of the stewards and the actors who are constantly engaged in public goods, such as public education, such as transportation, such as utilities, such as all, such as even, such as housing. What are the institutional designs of that? And I think participatory budgeting shouldn't be the Trojan horse for socialists. I think it should be a part of a vision for what a reshaped city looks like. And it doesn't necessarily mean everyone has to be engaged all the time, nonstop, there can be features to a reshaped participatory city and a socialist one that, uh, that has uh, very nuanced um, um, features to it. And uh, I think that's the opportunity, again, we have in this moment, not just reconstructing public goods uh, or rather refunding public goods, but really reconstructing what it even means to have a public good and what it means to be a part of that. Alexander, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a terrific way to start off our week. Thank you so much. We're going to be bugging you in the future to have you back on. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell, and it's time for Rotten History. On July 29th, 1973, 47 years ago this Wednesday, the young British Formula One race driver Roger Williamson blew a tire on the eighth lap of the Dutch Grand Prix at Zandvoort in the Netherlands. His March Ford car went flying into the barriers on the edge of the track, and since Formula One up until the 1970s didn't care about the health and safety of their drivers or spectators, 
as they do the human rights records of the nations hosting their races today. Those barriers had not been installed properly, sending the car bouncing back into the road where it flipped over and burst into flames. Williamson was not seriously injured by the impact, but he was trapped underneath his car screaming for help because nothing says auto sport like screaming for your life. The race was not stopped. Again, Formula One, inhumane and heartless. Other drivers were yellow flagged around the burning wreck, and nobody came to Williamson's aid, except for one competitor, a driver named David Purley, who pulled over, ran to the car, and burned his hands trying to lift it off Williamson. The car was too heavy, and Purley could not lift it alone, as both Purley and Williamson hollered for help. Race officials stood by, watching and doing nothing. Can you imagine watching, let's say, a football game and a player breaks a leg and suddenly another player is trying to set the leg instead of the medical staff? That's how cruel F1 can be, a truly deplorable sport. At the time, F1 lacked the necessary firefighting gear, even though another driver had been killed on that same track just three years earlier, and the competition being around for 24 years up to that point, you'd figure they'd have fire extinguishers, but one of the officials was just standing there. He was actually holding a small fire extinguisher, doing nothing. Pearlie ran over, angrily grabbed it out of the uncaring official's hands, and ran back to use it on the burning car as Williamson kept screaming for his life. A few spectators tried to jump the safety barriers to come to his aid, because Formula One wasn't, but they were pushed back by security people. Which is so Formula One. Meanwhile, a fire truck was prevented from reaching the crash site because of the other cars still racing around the track. Because there was a yellow flag. It wasn't like they deployed the safety car, which slows traffic to a crawl, allowing for a parade of cars to avoid any accidents involved of involving damaged cars on the track. Which they could have done as it was the first year F1 used the new innovation of the safety car, but they didn't. Most of the other drivers assumed that Purley had been the driver of the burning car and did not realize that Williamson was trapped underneath it. Eight minutes passed before the firefighters arrived at the wreck. By then, Williamson was dead at the age of 25. Legendary British driver Jackie Stewart went on to win the race, his fourth Grand Prix of the season. Jackie Stewart went on to be a driver safety advocate, making Formula One far less deadly. Many fans, of course, thought these regulations ruined the sport because... If you thought Formula One was bad as a sport, their fans might be worse. In Rotten History, July 30th, 1866, 154 years ago, this Thursday, just weeks after the end of Martial Law, which was my wrestling name. In New Orleans, in the wake of the U.S. Civil War, the city's mayor, John T. Monroe, led an armed white supremacist mob of cops and former Confederates, which we know as cops today, to a downtown meeting hall where a Louisiana State Constitutional Convention was being held. The white mob was angry about measures being taken in the South as part of post-war reconstruction, i.e., you know, freedom for black people. And Whitey was intent on preventing some 130 of the city's black residents from attending the convention to press for their voting rights, because historically, if there's one thing Whitey hates... It's a functioning democracy. The arrival of the two opposing groups at the meeting hall turned into a brawl and then a massacre as the white mob opened fire, of course, first shooting into the building's windows and then forcing their way inside. Over the next several hours, as people in the meeting hall ran for their lives, the fighting and killing spread for blocks throughout the neighborhood. Black people on the street, who had nothing to do with the convention whatsoever, were attacked and beaten to death or shot. Total of 238 people were killed and some 40 or 50 were wounded. Mayor Monroe and several other city officials were soon removed from office and martial law was once again declared in New York and New Orleans because nothing addresses civil unrest over a lack of justice like the thoroughly unjust practice of martial law. Just ask Portland and Seattle and Oakland and Los Angeles and wherever federal agents were acting like they were enforcing martial law this past weekend. Now that's rotten history and too close to be a rotten present as well. This is how Alex, please tell us what's happening on this week's show. Uh, let me F5. I still don't know for tomorrow. I'm going to get nervous about that. I'm starting to sweat. Or is that because it's like 87 degrees? <laughs> uh, so Tuesday, we don't know yet. Uh, still working on that. Wednesday, Ashley Dawson is going to be back Sweet. on the show to talk about his book, People's Power, uh, Reclaiming the Energy Commons. And then on Thursday, we're really excited to have on Tamara Fernando to talk about her Hypocrite Reader article, Death at the Pearl Fishery. And also on Thursday, of course, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. Also on tomorrow's show, Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell, and we'll, we, we will be re- reading some of your answers. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, really sweaty, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alexander Kolokotronis, today's guest. Thanks to Alex Jerry, our producer. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. And always thanks to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood for all of their work behind the scenes. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>